I want to reflect today on three women of the apocalypse. The final book of the New Testament is a fascinating work. The book of, the book of Revelation, the Revelation of John, the Apocalypse of John, several different titles. It took longer than any other book to establish itself as part of the inspired scriptures and is perhaps still today the least well-known of the books to most Christians. I remember one of my monastic contemporaries asking, must we really read all that tosh? It's deservedly the final book of scripture, for it draws on the whole of the Bible for its rich, rich symbolism. It begins with a sparkling picture of Christ as Lord of the Church and Lord of History, and ends with another enriched picture of Christ and his Father as the Lord of the Church. Between them, in chapters 4 and 5, is another presentation of God enthroned amid his heavenly court. And then, suddenly and unexpectedly, the same picture, but of the Lamb, standing as though slain in the middle of that same throne of God, and receiving the same, or even extended, rapturous homage. Before looking at these and the three women, I can't forbear a glance at the number symbolism, which leaves the reader with a quite new breadth of the world of numbers. Everyone knows that the number of the beasts is 666, triply one short of the perfect number 777. And so a declaration of radical insufficiency, of failure to reach the mark, the beast is radically insufficient and fails to meet the mark. The number seven runs through the book like a golden thread. Seven churches, seven gold lampstands, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of divine wrath, each time with a significant pause before the final cataclysmic seventh one. But there are other symbolic numbers too. Four for four square solidity, a thousand for immense weight, twelve, that's three times four, for solidity, solid reliability of tribes, apostles, jeweled gates, crops of fruit each year, all twelve. And then finally, 144,000, that is twelve squared, multiplied a few times by a thousand. And even the city of God is a gigantic cube of 2,400 kilometres. A cube of 2,400 kilometres. Enough of numbers. Now Christ, the divine Lord of history. In the initial presentation of the heavenly Son of Man, the first scene... Elements of Old Testament imagery jostle one another to draw the viewer back into the great visions of God in the Old Testament. The Son of Man approaching the one of great age in Daniel. The mobile chariot throne of Ezekiel's vision of the river Kibar. With the sharp two-edged sword incongruously in this vision issuing from the mouth of the priestly figure, the word of God taking us back to the prologue of John's Gospel, 
but given body by the attachment of his message to the seven churches of Asia in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. At the far end of this book, this vision is balanced by the triumphant presentation of God and the Lamb as master of completed history, the two of them constituting one master in chapter 21. In this gigantic cube of a city, there's no need of a temple, for the temple is, not are, but is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. There's no need of sun and moon to give light, for the glory of the Lord is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Again, one entity forming the light for the city. A third time, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will worship him. They will see him face to face, one throne. Only one worship, worshipping him, not them, one single deity composed of God and of the Lamb. And they'll see him face to face, though no one, not even Moses, can see God and live. Between these two bookends, if one could dare to call them bookends, comes a third scene, the confirmation of their dual deity, so inadequately painted by Renaissance painters. First is presented the throne of God in heaven, awesome in its imagery, both from Isaiah, holy, 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 as in Isaiah's daunting vocation vision, taken up in the triple sanctus of the Mars, which launches the Eucharistic prayer. And also from Ezekiel's opening vision of the revered mobile throne of God and its heraldic beasts, flashes of lightning and seven spirits of God. Due honour is played by the hymn of the 24 elders surrounding the throne. And then suddenly, without explanation, the scene changes to, 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 to the same scene, except that now in the middle of the throne is the Lamb, standing as though slain. Again, the same acclamation by the 24 elders and the seven spirits of God. This time is added the sevenfold acclamation of the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honour, glory and blessing, sevenfold. Thus the same divinity is acclaimed for the Lamb as for the obviously divine figure seated on the throne. Whatever else we learn from the Apocalypse, the basic lesson is that God, the Lord and the Lamb, is Lord of all, and in particular, Lord of all history. Into this rendering of the glory and majesty of God and the Lamb, so insisted upon at the beginning, the centre and the end of the book of Revelation come the three women. What sort of woman woman is presented? It's not sex or fertility that is presented, but precisely motherhood, 
to present it and is the centre of the picture, each in her own way. First comes the woman and the dragon in chapter 12. Her great sign appeared in heaven, a woman robed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. It's a number of solidity and permanence, of course. She's at the point of giving birth and crying out in the pains of childbirth. She's pursued by a great dragon, waiting to devour the child at the moment of its birth. But no, the child is snatched up into heaven and the woman is spirited away into the desert. The desert, the place to experience the unalloyed presence and protection of God. A wonderful place to be in the most noble of all places. She's there for a symbolic period of waiting, 1,260 days or half seven years. Again, radically incomplete. Her wait will not go on forever. This first woman has frequently been interpreted as Mary, the mother of Jesus, but her meaning is far wider than this. It's the beginning of hope, after which the conquest of evil, Leviathan, the dragon of evil, is inevitable. This woman is the universal symbol for the island of Patmos, where it is trumpeted that the book was written. The island of Patmos was the island where the Greek goddess Leto gave birth to Apollo, also futilely pursued by the great dragon of evil, Python. The Christian story is therefore illustrated and enriched by the Greek myth of the saving birth of the son of the chief god, Zeus, who was the father of Apollo. The second woman of the apocalypse is precisely the reverse of this, the great prostitute who stands for Babylon and for Rome, who dominates the world by her acquisitiveness and her total immorality. Built on seven hills, the seven hills of Rome, with water at her feet, the river Tiber, which flows through Rome. She is precisely the reverse of motherliness. She has made the population of the world drunk with the wine of her adultery. She's holding a wine cup filled with the disgusting filth of her prostitution. Her glory is in the acquisition of all the rich products of the world, one-way traffic, giving nothing in return. They're listed meticulously in fours as the merchants of the world engage in a mock kina, a mock funeral chant at her fall, as she becomes the haunt of demons and a lodging for every foul spirit and every dirty, loathsome bird. The reason for this virulent condemnation is that by the end of the first century, when the book was written, the worship of the emperor and the goddess Roma was one of the chief forces opposed to Christianity. Christians were presented with the stark choice. Would they say, Curios Caesar, or insist on saying, Curios Christos, would they say Caesar is Lord? Or would they insist on saying 
Christ is Lord, Kurios Christos. The great cities of the Eastern Mediterranean were ranked according to whether they held an altar to Caesar as God, a temple to Caesar as the great God, or a games for Caesar, the greatest of all gods. This would include the great city of Miletus, to which Patmos was a guardian and an outpost. It's been suggested that the opening sentence of the whole vision should read that the author of Revelation was exiled to Patmos on account of the word of God and of testimony to Jesus. Such was the price of adherence to the great prostitute, exile. The third woman of the apocalypse we've already encountered, though not under that name. She makes only a delicate appearance at the end and contrasting fiercely with the fallen prostitute city. We read, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The glory of virginity is not an absence of sex, as though sex was somehow a defilement, but the potential for motherhood, true and faithful motherhood. The bride adorned for her husband is the mother of the church, the wife of the lamb, and its lavish adornment bespeaks her beauty and attractiveness. The beauty of the bride is described primarily in terms not of physical features, but of her jeweled adornment, a feature still observed in Near Eastern brides. It has the glory of God and glittered like a very precious jewel of crystal clear diamond. The 12 gates are built each of one precious stone and they remain always open. Its gates will never be closed by day and there will be no night there. They will bring to it the glory and honour of the nations. Such is the virginal motherhood of the Bride of the Lamb, the third and final woman of the Apocalypse.